I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PullMaps Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Joining us today is Catherine Harold of Indiana University. She's the author of a brand new book, Delta Democracy, Pathways to Incremental Civic Revolution in Egypt and Beyond, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Catherine, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here today. So tell us about this book. Uh, what, what, what did you think uh, you were going to accomplish when you set out to write this book? What was the major contribution that you were hoping to make? Well, the bookmark is about civil society and democracy promotion. And I argue that the book makes three primary contributions, a theoretical contribution surrounding civil society and democratization, a policy contribution regarding the reform of US democracy assistance, and a methodological contribution. And this is by no means a novel contribution, but I think it's important to stress the value of ethnography in political science research. So let me focus just for a minute or two on that theoretical contribution. We know from existing literature that non-governmental organizations or NGOs that operate in non-democratic contexts do not serve as vehicles of collective action, citizen mobilization, democratization, et cetera. Instead, they serve to prop up autocracy. Savvy dictators use a variety of strategies to control and co-opt civil society through NGOs. And in the case of Egypt, we know that Mubarak was demonstrably skilled in those strategies of control and co-optation. So prior to the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings, the vast majority of NGOs in Egypt advanced the regime's neoliberal economic development agenda. They focused their activities in the realm of socioeconomic development and charitable relief. And they steered very clear of activities that could be deemed political or controversial or that, that um, mobilized citizens in opposition. But those 2011 uprisings really created a major political opportunity for NGOs to lead civil society's democracy promotion efforts. But most organizations, Egypt's development NGOs, charitable NGOs, grant-making foundations, the, the groups that constitute the vast majority of the tens of thousands of NGOs in Egypt appeared to hang back. They did not change their strategies to promote democracy. Whereas local human rights organizations, Western donors, international NGOs, they rushed to the front lines of democracy promotion efforts. But what the book argues is that in fact, many development NGOs and local grant-making foundations did promote democracy. But they did so in ways that went unrecognized by the Western democracy promotion establishment, and far more importantly, by successive ruling regimes in Egypt. And they did so, number one, by masking their democracy promotion work, um, and I, I should say, quote unquote, democracy promotion work mm -hmm. within their socioeconomic development activities. And number two, they, instead of focusing on the procedural form of democracy, they sought to build substantive democracy through participation, free expression, and rights claiming at grassroots levels. 
And this form of democracy building work continued at least through 2017, which was my last visit to the field. And as a result, um, I argue that the perseverance of these NGOs, long after Western donors had slashed their democracy promotion budgets, human rights NGOs had been shuttered, international NGOs kicked out of the country, um, that theories of civil society um, need to account for the maneuverability, the resourcefulness that certain NGOs can exhibit even under harsh government crackdowns on civil society. Um, so let me stop there. I would be happy to talk about the policy contributions, methodological contributions, et cetera, but, but let me pause there. Sure. Well, that sounds great. Why don't we start with, uh, with the starting premise of the book, which I think is one which I think you described very well, which is the role that these um, NGOs play under the pre-revolutionary regime in Egypt and the, and the role that they play in kind of supporting the neoliberal economic development and, and uh, kind of fitting within the red lines of the regime. Uh, what did you find when you, when, you, when you started doing this research and talking to people? How did you feel that they understood their position within the, um, within, within the political realm? It's worth noting that my early research began in January 2010, one year before the uprisings. And at that time, it was very clear. My, at, that, at that time, my focus was actually primarily on contemporary grant-making foundations, local mm -hmm. contemporary grant-making foundations that had emerged in the past um, 10 years or so. And it was very clear that they were not just um, controlled by the regime. They were virtually in bed with the regime. One, one foundation program officer described the group as being in cahoots mm -hmm. with the Mubarak regime. These foundations had been established by corporate moguls who had benefited from Mubarak's system of crony capitalism. And they, in essence, traded their philanthropy, which supported socioeconomic development, which was right in line with neoliberalism under Mubarak um, in, as, as a sign of loyalty for, and in return for um, business perks, such as kickbacks, contracts, monopoly rights, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The staff members of these groups were very frank, as were the leaders of development NGOs, those groups that work on economic development. They their staff were ambivalent. They wanted to promote a more autonomous civil society, um, a more democratic form of governance, but they felt completely hamstrung by the monitoring, the crackdowns, et cetera, of the Mubarak regime. And so then they're confronted with this big popular uprising. And, uh, and as you know, I mean, there's quite a generational split in how they respond to that. But then right. how do they, what kinds of opportunities do they then see given where they've been in, these, um, in, in the years running up to the revolution? Well, it's, they saw a number of opportunities. And I want to stress here that I'm focusing primarily on development NGOs and local grant-making foundations. These groups saw a number of opportunities. There was a, an initial power vacuum. 
the Supreme Council on, of the Armed Forces didn't appear to be cracking down on civil society, at least in the first months and up to a year after Mubarak's ouster. There was a surge of citizens wanting to volunteer. Um, Ligan or popular committees had been formed. So there was a real surge of, of desire among citizens to engage in rebuilding mm -hmm. Egypt as a more democratic space. And so rather than focus on national political institutions where there was jockeying for power already going on, sure. these development NGOs and foundations really focused on the grassroots. And they created spaces for collective action, um, for discussion, for debate, for um, problem solving um, within grassroots communities, not just in Cairo, um, throughout the country, critically important. Um, they created spaces for free expression through arts and culture and other means in which citizens could come together and express their views for the future of Egypt. And they coached um, grassroots communities on their rights, their basic human rights as citizens, mm -hmm. and on claiming those rights from local government officials. So all of these efforts were really focused, again, not on procedural democracy at the national level, but on cultivating a culture of democracy at the grassroots. Now, this, this concept of cultivating democratic attitudes, democratic individuals at the grassroots level, that's, that sounds like a fairly you know, familiar way that many authoritarian governments have, um, have, have used to justify not moving towards democracy, because they would say, first, you need to build democratic citizenship. Mubarak used to talk like that as well. How is what these people were doing different from that kind of trope of citizen building? Well, it wasn't only a critic, or, or it, actually, I should say the, the human rights NGOs with whom I spoke, the leaders of these groups, they also critiqued this idea of the need to cultivate a democratic citizenry before mm -hmm. um, national political institutions were reformed. And look, um, that was not the attitude of the development and uh, development NGOs and foundation leaders. Um, they recognized that their work had to go hand in hand with the reform of, of national political institutions. Um, and, but A, human rights organizations, INGOs, et cetera, were already working in that space. And B, they recognized that that could be a death knell. If they mm -hmm. were to suddenly move into that space, they could be, um, they would be viewed with suspicion, and they certainly could be cracked down upon. And, and that view was prescient. I mean, we saw what happened in 2011 with the raids of the international NGOs and the human rights NGOs, and we've seen what's happened subsequently with, the, with many organizations being shut down or, or forced out of Egypt. So it was, it was a bit of a compromise. Um, ideally, both would take place, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this was the space in which these organizations felt that they could actually maneuver. Now, you're quite critical of the, uh, of the Western and international NGOs and, and their approach to democracy promotion. What was wrong with what they were doing? Why, why, why do you see this as 
less well adapted to uh, Egyptian realities. Well, I want to also stress um, that I'm not the first scholar to find these, and I want to tip my hat to scholars such as Sheila Carapico, um, Aaron Snyder, um, Sarah Bush, et cetera, who have studied and critiqued some of the shortcomings of U.S. democracy assistance. Of course, what I'm about to say reflects my own research, but I do want to tip my hat to them. Um, so I argue that there are three to four primary um, weaknesses of U.S. democracy assistance. Number one, it focuses almost exclusively on a procedural form of democracy. It seeks to, to reform national political institutions, often in the shape of U.S. democratic institutions, which are not necessarily the types of institutions that are demanded or that what might be best in the target country. Number two, it is expressly political. So it's mm -hmm. separate from aid for socioeconomic development or humanitarian assistance. Um, and this disrespects what is often a deeply intertwined nature of politics and economics in target countries. It's also dangerous because it draws the attention of rulers to uh, that democracy building work. And it also tags it as Western. Um, just using the term democracy, I should pause here and note that I'm using the term because of the audience to whom I'm speaking um, in the book, but that term democracy is very latent. And so I, I do caution us when we think about using that term in the first place. Um, so it's procedural, it's political, um, it's also highly technical. Mm -hmm. Democracy aid uh, produces outputs such as reports, trainings, etc., that often fail to result in the desired out or the presumed desired outcome of democracy and fail to really rally um, broad swaths of local populations. And finally, it tends to be elite. And this um, goes back to what I just mentioned about failing to mobilize um, vast majority of citizens. It tends to circulate in a relatively elite milieu of um, highly trained, highly educated professionals who speak not only the language of democracy, but also often the language of English. And so for these reasons, it has a bad track record, quite honestly, of mobilizing widespread support for democratic political reform. Well, here's where your, your methodological contribution comes in, your ethnography, where you were actually like spending a lot of time like looking at how this was all playing out in the areas where you were, where, where you were working. So tell us more about that then. Like what exactly were you doing then uh, during your field work as you were trying to use your ethnographic approach to seeing what these groups were doing? Well, my first year in the field, Mark, I was asking some fairly irrelevant questions. <laughs> <laughs> I went into the field with a relatively tight protocol, interview protocol. I had a robust theoretical framework. I thought I knew what I was looking for when I was investigating whether or not development NGOs and local philanthropic foundations seized the opportunity to promote democracy after Mubarak. It took me about a year to realize, even despite what 
many foundation and NGO leaders were, were telling me, but I, I wasn't hearing what they were telling me. And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I went, I was about to leave Egypt in early 2012 with what I thought was my answer. I thought that my answer to my initial question, how do these groups respond to a major political opportunity, was that they don't. Either they are unskilled in promoting democracy or they're uninterested because of former ties to the Mubarak regime. And we had the crackdown on NGOs and simultaneously in late 2011 and simultaneously really a crackdown on Western researchers. So here I was a Western researcher studying NGOs. I thought, okay, I have my answer. It's time to get out of here, <laughs> but I'm a swimmer and I swim daily. And I thought, well, before leaving Egypt, I want to swim in the Red Sea. So I went camping on the Red Sea. And it turns out that the director of this camp also ran a local development NGO. And I was telling him about my project and he listened patiently and he smiled and he said, Katie, I don't need money to build democracy. And then he explained this more substantive form of democracy building. And it was then that everything just clicked. What the NGOs and foundations had been telling me suddenly made more sense. They were building democracy. They weren't calling it that. By no means were they calling it that. And so I actually stayed in the field for about another year and I kept, I, I returned um, two more times to investigate whether or not this substantive form of democracy building was taking place. And through extensive interviews, but also participant observation, countless conversations with everyday Egyptians, activists, et cetera, I was able to uncover this democracy building work. So Can that- Give us an example yeah. of like the participant observation. Like what, what's an example of one that, you, that really struck you as a really good example of what you were learning or what you were seeing? Um, gosh, let's take a group, uh, an NGO that, um, among other activities, supports uh, handicraft makers. Mm -hmm. um, so one day I visited a, um, I don't even know what you would call it, Mark, not a shop really, but a building where okay. women were together um, making handicrafts. And um, in one room, actually, the NGO director was talking with some of the, the leaders of that organization about um, some of this um, sort of, um, I would say, it, it, some of the activities around participation, um, discussion, debate, problem solving, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and in the other room, I was witnessing women who were indeed talking about um, their uh, the challenges that their communities were facing, um, potential uh, solutions to those problems, and, and, and um, how, thinking about how they might go about addressing those issues. Um, as well, they were talking about politics, which is something that we had never, of course, seen before. Um, yet again, so, so this was taking place a little bit more informally, but at the same time, that NGO, or that NGO director working with the sort of one of the leaders of the handicraft makers um, on some more formal strategies. So um, yeah, that was just one instance mm -hmm. of many where, we, where I was seeing this 
real focus within, again, within the socioeconomic development work, within the handicraft making, a real focus on building a sense of collective agency. So what I find interesting is that, you know, you, you talk about this in terms of building collective, collective agency, citizenship, deliberation. What is the value of, of turning that into democracy? You started off earlier by saying that the, the word democracy was, uh, was quite loaded. Why do you return to it? <laughs> um, mostly because of my audience. So, mm -hmm. and, and I, I should mention that this book has multiple audiences. Um, but a primary audience is actually, well, of course, scholars, but also the Western Democracy Promotion Establishment. This book is published in the Bridging the Gap series of Oxford University Press, which seeks to bridge the gap between research and policy and foreign policy. And so because US, the U.S. Democracy Promotion Establishment continues to use that word and recognizes that word. I did use it because what I'm trying to show is that this idea of democracy promotion has so many more components than are currently incorporated and imagined. Um, moving forward, I should, well, moving forward, I, my current research project is in Palestine, actually, where I'm studying grass, mm -hmm. grassroots mobilization. I'm not using the word democracy at all there. Obviously, it's a different context, but um, what we're seeing really around the world through social movements, et cetera, seems to be a demand not for quote unquote democracy, not for Western democratic institutions, but for the values of freedom, justice, and equality. So moving forward, I'm getting away from that word, but specifically because I'm trying to reach policymakers right. with this book, I did use it. And so I guess one last question then is, as you noted um, uh, right at the outset, uh, conditions in Egypt now, are, I mean, they're, they're really very, very bad for non-governmental organizations, uh, any form of political, social freedoms. Um, and so how would you see the kind of grassroots participatory uh, building, citizenship, democracy, whatever word you use, how, how does that hold up under these especially harsh, repressive conditions? Well, the last, my last visit to the field was in 2017, and I expected that this, this type of work would have been extinguished. To my surprise, it wasn't. The environment was, oh gosh, um, the, the tension was so thick. The mm -hmm. environment was so repressive, and yet these groups soldiered on, and their staff members were wearied, but still hopeful, and still pushing forward. I am in touch with some of these leaders today. They are still finding ways to move forward. Um, now, of course, with the pandemic, the, uh, that, that, you know, I'm not there right now, so, so I really don't know. But, but I'm actually optimistic for the future, despite the political repression that we are seeing. Um, I, NGO leaders back in 2011, 2012 told me that the 
um, fear had been permanently broken after the uprisings. And certainly fear has resettled within Egypt, but the, the hopes, the aspirations, and those grassroots attempts to hmm. continue to build freedom, justice, and equality, I believe continue and will continue. Well, I guess one last question then. Um, I guess I said the last one was the last question, but this one really will be. Uh, the title of the book, Delta Democracy. You have, a nice, uh, you have a nice explanation for the title in the book. Why don't you share it with us now? What do you mean by Delta Democracy? Well, it's a triple entendre, Mark. Um, mm -hmm. The democracy building work of Egypt's development NGOs and foundations was not meant to bring about a rapid transition from authoritarianism to democracy. Instead, it was meant to coax the country toward democratization in a more incremental way. So the term delta, um, which represents a modicum of difference in mathematics, refers to this incremental form of democracy building. But the symbol for delta, a triangle, um, represents the pyramids of Egypt. <laughs> and of course, um, Egypt's population pools in the Nile River Delta. So, so that's the, uh, that's, that's the um, meaning behind the title. Very clever. Uh, well, thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Catherine Harold of Indiana University uh, about her book, Delta Democracy, uh, just published by Oxford University Press. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure to talk with you. 